Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be discussing, let me add it to the stream, this clip by Mike Winger that I just posted. Mike Winger on storytelling as truth making. Now, I got quite a few comments both in that video and uh, privately about uh, what's my take on what he's, he's talking about here. Because uh, I know I, I have reviewed Mike Winger in the past, and we will be re-going over one of the videos that we have discussed previously. Uh, Mike Winger, I like the guy. So it's uh, he doesn't like open theists, that's fine. But I do like Mike Winger. Uh, he has a good a lot of good points. And the full video of this, I didn't post a link to the full video because I'm lazy, but the full video of this is worth a watch. I just thought this particular part was very interesting because within this part, he talks about this storytelling as truth-making trope that we encounter throughout society. That It's the moralistic fallacy. However, something makes me feel that's the truth of the matter. Moralistic fallacy. Uh, basically, it's confusing what we want to be true with what is true. And he does a pretty good job breaking that down. That doesn't mean that he himself is not a victim to moralistic fallacies. Uh, we might be covering that a little bit. He kind of skirts it a little bit in how he treats repentance texts, but we'll pull up that video. But let's listen to him on his Mike Winger on storytelling as truth-making clip. So John Pavlovitz says this in, a, in his book, If God is love, don't be a jerk, page 95. It doesn't matter how much phobic Christians sincerely believe they're loving sinners. If they ignore the, the, pain, the pain expressed to them by LGBTQ human beings, and it doesn't matter if they tell themselves that they're just confronting immoral behavior. Now, this is just one issue of many that the same trope, this storytelling as truth-making, can be applied to. But it's his particular focus of tonight's sermon or briefing. ...in the name of God if the methods they use inflict greater injury. Now, let's pause for a moment and reflect that John Pavlovitz doesn't care that he just called Christians phobic and horrible people and that he inflicted injury and pain upon them. And that's going to be because there's a major inconsistency in progressive Christians, which is privileging certain people over others. But they argue against privilege, but it's all privilege-focused, I think. Um, but this is the view. It's like, hey, look, if you're hurting them, you've got to be wrong. And so all we need is for people to say, hey, look, you're hurting me. So you have to change your theology. This, I'm going to coin a, a, a term here. I mean, I'm sure someone has said it somewhere, but we'll call it storytelling as truth making. Yeah, I don't think uh, he might be coining it for himself, but I think this is discussed elsewhere. I don't have the references offhand, but definitely this is not the first time this concept has been discussed where people privilege their particular views or outlook over others based on backgrounds. And there's hierarchies of, of people's emotions. And, and uh, oh, oh, racism is true because someone of a certain background claims that there's this one incident that they had within their life. It doesn't matter what stats you could show them. It doesn't matter uh, the disparities in the actual data, their experience trumps statistics. And so you're going to see things like this throughout the world. And of course, uh, anecdotal evidence is, is one data point, but it can't be, you can't point to trends from that, especially in a nation of uh, 330 million people. Uh, one, one data point is not going to be 
conclusive. This doesn't mean we discount people who claim that they've had experiences with, like, let's say the supernatural. When people talk about their experiences with demons or Ouija boards, I know Braxton Hunter is doing a series on various people and their interactions with the supernatural. We, we don't just discount that and say, oh, you're, you're using storytelling as truth making. No, they're actually just telling you about their experience. And then you could use that data point wherever you want. You know, you, you don't come to this overarching truth of the matter from that one data point, but you use it as some sort of pattern or some sort of something that you figure into how you view the world. And he actually talks about that, that he actually accepts these people's data points that they give. It's them because they confuse, they use the moralistic fallacy. It's them that confuse that one data point with an absolute. Because one homosexual man was comforted by leftist Christianity, that means this is this is uh, this is good and beneficial, and everyone should achieve that. I was dealing with the individual on God is open, and he's like, "Oh, here, um, look into homosexuality in the Bible." And it's like, okay, I pulled up the most popular popular YouTube video on the subject, and half the video is him just talking about his feelings and how how being discluded from fellowship made him feel and how not having a partner of his sexual choice would make him feel it was like all feelings and so it's it's not very persuasive to me i like i like what mike winger says show me like a bible reference we we could talk historical questions you know emotions are emotions and it is an interesting data point but there are alternate views from the other perspective as he's going to point out storytelling as truth making so like let's say we hear a story about a gay man who felt outcast depressed suicidal until finding love and acceptance in a progressive christian community that finally embraced him and his partner as they are and now he's joyful and now he's happy and now he serves in the church that story is meant to tell you that you guys have to have this wrong because look this man is very happy and satisfied now so no, you you will come across this when people are attacking open theism. It'll be like, oh, my feelings, if if God can change, we can't be assured of our salvation. It's like, oh, uh, my assurity in Calvinism, the confidence I felt when I converted to Calvinism, oh, that trumps everything. It's like, well, you know what? People have the opposite experience too, where they come to open theism and they're like, wow, this is way better than Calvinism, where all the this... This depravity was predestined by God. So um, I see your anecdotal evidence and I raise you my anecdotal evidence. And now we have anecdotal evidence at cross purposes. Okay, that didn't really get us anywhere. It's storytelling as truth making. And you find it in open theistic debates. You even find it from Mike Winger a little bit because in his video on repentance, he talks about how we can be assured of our salvation if God never changes his mind. It's just a little blip. It's it's not the main focus of the video. It's like a three second line that he throws in there, but it's like oh that kind of kind of rings rings true with your storytelling as truth making. When he was doing things the way you say, he was very depressed and suicidal and unhappy. His story, his story of satisfaction, proves you're wrong. Now you realize this is a different way of doing theology, right? You're you're used to maybe opening your Bible and going, well, it seems pretty clear. Here instead, we're going to say, hold on, slow down. Nobody really knows what that means. <laughs> We're going to listen to the stories of these real people. Aren't you supposed to love people? And so you feel that this draws, plus it feels nice, man. 
Like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to deride it. I'm trying to understand the attraction. It feels very nice. Look, I have a, a desire for catharsis that is me getting along with everybody. And this feels good. This, I, that would draw me towards progressive Christian stuff. So there's a problem of counter stories. Uh, so you get stories of people who say, hey, I'm like, I was in the, the, the homosexual lifestyle. I thought I was happy, but I came out, and now I'm fulfilled and joyous in a new way that I never knew before in Christ. Those kind of counter stories are really a problem because if storytelling is truth-making, how do you pick which story to believe? And so progressive Christians are forced to say, well, either good for you, right? Hey, that's good for you, but now let's just let's loosen up the rules. Let's not make it about rules. Let's make it about personal satisfaction. Okay, so yeah, that's good for you. You found it that way, but don't put that on anybody else. Each person could find their own thing. Or their stories are doubted. Um, in a conversation, uh, Sean McDowell, who was, was speaking yesterday, he had with a progressive Christian they both told stories. The progressive Christian told the story about the man who found total satisfaction in same-sex relationships in a progressive Christian community. And Sean told stories about numerous people he'd known who talked about satisfaction in Christ when they gave up those lifestyles. And what was interesting was the response. The progressive Christian responded like he had to pick which stories to believe. And he goes, well, I have a hard time honestly believing this. This is, this is absolutely my experience with uh, debating and interacting with individuals. If, you, if, you, if they're relying on their story-making as truth-making, they will just outright deny anything that counters that narrative. They want a specific narrative of the world, and any data to the contrary, they're just going to reject overall. It, it is a funny phenomenon. It's uh, uh, typically, I, th I think if you do the personality, the big five on these people, they're going to be high neuroticism type of individuals. Um, they're going to be, they're, they're not going to be very stable, confident individuals. They're going to be highly neurotic is, is my guess is what's going to be happening there. Stories. Because it's storytelling is truth making. Now me, I'm like, I believe all those stories. I just think my satisfaction does not prove the goodness and truthfulness of a thing. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but it seems like a pretty significant worldview shift on this topic. Just because you're satisfied in Jesus doesn't mean it's true. Yeah, that's actually pretty funny. I was talking to my sister once. It's like, oh, she's, she's saying all these people who are living in sin have like the worst lives and they're all depressed. It's like, well, not always. Not always. Like Hugh Hefner, uh, he doesn't he didn't seem, I think he's dead now, he didn't seem like a miserable, depressed person. And she's like, yes, really, he was inside. Okay, I guess. Um, but I, I don't see evidence for that. I see kind of evidence to the contrary. Someone that people have a wide variety of emotions and feelings and motivations and, and values that painting it with a broad brush and saying this always leads to this one outcome is, is a little bit... It's a little bit too much. I, I, I don't know if I quite buy that. I think some, some very evil people die in peace. Maybe like the Stalins and the Pol Pots of the world. Um, they, they live pretty long and they live pretty happy. How about this uh, Jim Khan Un and Jim Khan Il? These people are living a long time. At just the worst dictatorships in human history. And they seem pretty happy. Just because you're satisfied in a lifestyle? that the Bible seems to say is incorrect doesn't make it a good lifestyle. There are other measures of truth beyond this. I'm trying to hold that consistently. All right, so that's the end of that clip. It, the interesting thing there is he's railing against what he considers progressive Christianity, and by that he means 
anyone who doesn't agree with my biblical take. And so he'll like throw in Mormons with uh, leftist progressives like uh, pro-abortion, uh, pro-homosexuality, and he'll lump like Mormons in with them. It's like, ah, I, 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 I would be hard pressed to categorize Mormons and maybe even Jehovah Witnesses. I haven't dealt with too many Jehovah Witnesses. I'd be hard, hard pressed to classify these people as progressive Christians, but it, it kind of meets his broad brush that he's trying to dismiss these people. This is a counterculture movement to what he's trying to establish. And so broad brush deny that. So the interesting thing is he will talk about storytelling as truth-making, but he might fall prey to it a little bit himself. And someone in the comments is pointing out um, how he at some time talked about the Holy Spirit has guided him to truth. And that may be the case. I didn't actually look that video up, but let's go to a different video of his, Mike Winger on repentance, in which he, he you know, he, he claims his data set is the Bible. And for the most part, I, I think he's accurate and right on that. But he might have some blind spots in which he deprioritizes the text in favor of salvaging tradition, a kind of an anti-biblical tradition. So we got why God repents and changes his mind in the Bible. So God, I think I think it's uh, at the right spot. We're, we're going to skip to the end. So I think when we reviewed this before, we covered the first part of it. In it, he says, well, yeah, God repents, but not repentance like a man. He doesn't actually change his mind. Now he's going to reiterate that. He's going to claim it's all anthropomorphism. Let's hear him. God turns to. That's the concept. Man is wicked. So God goes from blessing, you know, I'll be fruitful and multiply. This is Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. I'm blessing you. I'm blessing you. Man's super wicked. So God turns. I'm going to destroy you and start over with Noah. But the blessing, the ultimate blessing still there. The plan was all in place the whole time. Israel's in sin. So Israel's general blessings turn into, I'm going to humble you. And then when they turn back again, God goes, now I'm going to bless you. God's actually being consistent because of the sin of man. So here's the, my final analysis. Then we'll go to your guys' questions and thoughts. This is, this is the thing for tonight because I didn't have time to prepare the Mark study, which we'll do next week. Um, did God change his mind? Uh, no, not in the human sense, but in a divine sense, we anthropomorphically talk about God changing his mind. What he did change was his posture towards people because their behaviors were becoming more wicked or they turned from the wickedness. Okay, so if you change your posture towards people, is that a change? Are you one way at one time and a different way at a different time? And the answer is yes. And how uh, classical theologians try to get around this is they say, well, God's like a static pole, and as we sin, we move away from that pole, and as we do good, we go towards that pole. So the change isn't actually in God, it's in us. So he doesn't make that case here, because um, I don't think this concerns right now in his mind, but I think if pressed, he probably would do that. But often in the Bible, you see God changing for God's own sake. There's internal changes within God for God's sake, not based on us, not based on our actions, not based on things we do. He says, you know what? I'm tired. I'm tired of uh, punishing you. I'm repenting for my own sake. I think that's Isaiah. I'd have to pull up the reference. But also uh, in, in Exodus, Exodus 32, a famous passage, he doesn't, he doesn't change because the people repent. He changes because he is petitioned by Moses. There's not a change in the people's disposition. The people are ignorant of all these events going on, and there is a change in God. Furthermore, 
if you look at the actual stories, I'm going to hit play on him pretty quickly. He's he's going to say that God, I think he might have already said it, that God doesn't change for his own sake because he made a mistake. Let's let's see if he he brings that up. Does it mean that God thought he made a mistake? Oh, here no, we go. I didn't think he made a mistake. The whole thing was in God's plan all along. He's using all of it. It just means that God really cares and is really interacting with us in real life right now. You know, I experienced this moment like it's real. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm really here. I'm really experiencing this stuff. And this stuff reveals that God is too. He's experiencing these things with us. You know, and, and he says, you know, mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. I think God does. I think he's mourning with us who mourn and weeping with us who weep. And I think we're seeing this happen in real time as well. God really. So he says God doesn't repent uh, for of his own actions. He says that would be silly. So he's using his emotional attachments to the outcome to dictate his reading of the text. But the thing is, the text doesn't bear what he's claiming. If we read Genesis uh, 6, 5 and 6, 6 and 6, 7, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So you get a scene, you get some sort of ocular or some, some sort of perception and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only on evil continually. So there's some sort of evaluation. The heart is evil. He's perceiving this. And the Lord regretted. Oh, what did he regret? That he made man on earth. So it's not saying, oh, the Lord was sad that mankind is pretty evil. It's saying, what did he regret? What did he turn from? That he had made man. He's regretting of his own previous actions. And it's so funny interacting with these individuals. And you try to say, whoa, the, the text tells us what he repents of. There, there's a prepositional phrase in there that, that kind of it, it in, indicates to us what's going on. What did the Lord regret? Was it that man had become wicked? And they'll say, yeah, absolutely. It's like, no, it doesn't say that. He regretted what? That he had made man on earth. He's regretting his own action. It, it's, it's not about the people. It's about his prior action. And it grieved him to his heart. What grieved him? What is the object of that grief? The object of the grief is his own actions in creating man. So it's, uh, Roddy writes, I don't understand why so many hyperventilate and twist themselves in a pretzel to explain away something so plain and simple. It's because they're wedded to tradition and not the Bible. And he will uh, accuse open theists. I think he, in his mind, um, Mike Winger, I think in his mind, all open theists are Greg Boyd. And because Greg Boyd has a cruciform hermeneutic, that all open theists are guilty by implication. And that might actually be be bolstering his claims in his own own mind that open theists are part of this progressive anti-biblical wave. And that, that possibly could be what's going on there. But not all open theists are Greg Boyd. And open theists have internal disputes among themselves. And if you go to a secular scholars like Christine Hayes and... Uh, Probably John Day, if he's reading this verse, these people are just going to point out, yeah, this is God repenting of his own actions. God changes his mind in the Bible, Christine Hayes says and writes, it's just a fact of the text. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. And so why is he doing this? Because he regrets, he's sorry. He regrets what? that I have made them. He's regretting a previous action of his own. So 
in order to get to this position where God doesn't regret his own actions, God doesn't repent of his own actions, God doesn't say, oh, I didn't want to do that originally, he has to just ignore the text. He has to try to give a broad overview of the text and skip the details because the details are pretty damning to his position. And it's so funny because he'll call the people who actually care about the details, he'll call those people the heretics. Aaron writes, if God is experiencing, then God is having emotions. Yes. These emotions are not anthropomorphic. Yeah, Mike Winger, before this clip, we'll try to rewind to hear him talk about anthropomorphisms. They are real emotions. Since God is experiencing something in time, then open theism is true. Yeah, if God has experiences, if there's internal functioning within God, if he feels sorrow, if he feels joy, if he sings over creation, if he feels, if he's moved internally by outside creatures, things external to himself, then God is changing. God is open. God is not forever static in this nothingness void, which is the classical perception of him. So the text doesn't bear out what Mike Winger wants, and so he invents these mechanisms to dismiss. So we'll hit play, and then we'll probably rewind and hear the anthropomorphism. He cares. So if you're worried, what if God changes his mind about me or you? No, that's not going to happen. You're in Christ. You're in the love of God. End of story. See, what? Uh, because if God could change, then he could change his mind about you and me. Storytelling as truth-making, conflating, conflating what we want to be with true with what is true. Now, I don't think God is going to violate us and uh, steer us down the wrong, wrong path and desert us. But I don't think that's because he has some sort of metaphysical property that prevents him from ever doing harm or evil. That's, that's, not, that's not actually what's discussed in the Bible. In the Bible, the Bible emphasizes time and time again God's providence, God's directing of history, God bringing things to fruition, God's active involvement in, in the real-time events on earth, bringing them, uh, we need to actually go over this paper that's uh, on predestination and election, and that's the author's conclusion, how Paul uses the term predestination. It's about God's active involvement in current events to bring about his plans. It's not about this eternal uh, <laughs> decree out in the nether. That's, that's not his conception. So when the Calvinists come to the text and they see a word like election or predestination, and they have all these preloaded thoughts that just come to mind, it's like, oh, he, Paul's talking about predestination. He must mean whatever I have in mind when I use the word predestination. That's just not the case. That's not how he uses it. None of the context speaks to that. And it's all of his context is talk about free choices of individuals to get grafted in to the body of Christ. Actions of individuals to become part of the elect. That's his purpose and use of predestination. And so let's, let's rewind. We'll hear his take on anthropomorphism. I think it's about the 37 mark. Dude, it, 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 you were sad. Dude. You were happy. Dude. Right? You were shocked. Dude. It was just, you know, you forgot someone's name. Hey, dude. I remember my friend's mom would say dude, and he'd always be like, Mom, don't say dude. It was like, it really bugged him when she said dude. I still say it every once in a while. I'll catch myself saying dude. He's a very charismatic guy, so I got to give him that. Uh, he's, he could just stand up there and talk, and, and you're, like, interested in his stories because he's got some charisma. Dude, and I'm like, oh, I feel, I don't know, I feel, like, kind of silly when I do it now, but whatever, dude. <laughs> 
so there's there's an element of that I think that's there. It's just that you know words you know are kind of doing double duty in some cases with Hebrew. But there's something I think that is probably more on target for explaining why these terms are being used, and it's it's a term anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is where you get like you know anthropos like man, which means man, and morph like I'm I'm assigning a human quality to something that's not human. So he does make some good points here, but let's let's consider how the term was originally used in people like Augustine. There were literally groups of people he would call anthropomorphs. These are people who didn't just assign uh, mythical, allegorical features to God. These are people who actually believed that God had a body. And so that's what an anthropomorphite was, someone who believed God had a body. And it wasn't a dismissive literary term. It's not used like that until the modern word. Even in English, when that word first arose, I, I've pulled up the original references to the word. It's defined as the people who believe that God have has a body. And so this is this is total, total modern conceptions of like Brave Little Toaster and the movie Cars and any any sort of movie in which you got anthropomorphic baby airplanes or something like that. It's it's uh, taking these modern concepts and pushing them back onto the Bible. And of course, what are these concepts but fictional framing devices? You have Puss in Boots, you have a talking cat. It's it's a fictional framing device for fictional story. Uh, what what I, I think a lot of Christians, even if you're not an open theist, you really need to start doing is start talking about idioms and metaphor. Because it's it's not like these types of references are alien to non-God creatures. And so one of my famous examples I use is of King David. <clears throat> this is in Psalms 89, 25. This is God talking. I will set his hand, King David's hand, on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Now what this means is it's, it's not anthropomorphism. It's not assigning human features to a non-human being. No, it's actually an idiom. It's a figure of speech, and it means hands are associated with power, and putting his hand on the sea means that he'll rule up to the coastline. That's how far his power will stretch, because hands are associated with power. So these metaphors have meaning, and I suggest everyone go grab the book The Suffering of God by Terence Fretheim, and he talks about how metaphors work and operate. In essence, all language is metaphorical. It, it's drawing domains of concepts and matching one domain to another domain so that we could have understanding of that other domain. And I think Mike Winger kind of gets this, but he gives it the term anthropomorphism, which is not a thing. It's not an ancient thing. It's, it's not a literary device in the Bible. It's, it's just not something. Um, and then he, he uses the wrong term, and what he really should be using, if he wants to make a better case, is a metaphor. Just so I can better explain it to other humans. That's the idea. We do this with, um, with animals. We do use anthropomorphisms. We talk to, to, about animals like they're humans. Like we give them more opinions than they really have about things, you know, sometimes and stuff. If you define anthropomorphism, it's just that. When you describe non-human things as if they were humans, and the reason you do it is to better understand them from a human perspective. That's the reason why we do it, to better understand them from a human's perspective. This is what we do when we say that God has a hand in Scripture. Scripture says God has a hand, or that his arm is outstretched to his people. It's not as though there's this 12-mile-long giant arm 
reaching out to God, to God's people. And nobody thinks this. It's super obvious to us when we see God's arm is outstretched or his ear, his ear is turning to the people. Like, I'm not like picturing, you know, that, that thing happening with God. I realize that he, he inclines his ear to them that rather he's giving them special attention in response to their prayers. I, I realize I'm giving, I'm doing an anthropomorphism thing. We read about God whistling in scripture. I'm not actually, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not actually thinking. And so uh, what he does well is he, he tries to give meaning to God repenting. And he says it signifies a dispositional change between God and people, which, eh, yeah, but what's God repenting of in the text? I think what it really comes down to is that it ignores the details of what's going on in those actual stories, in those narratives. Those, those times that God repents, it's critical to the plot. It drives the plot, explains actions, explains motivations. And if you're considering it just anthropomorphism or metaphor, the story falls apart. It just doesn't work anymore. And so I, I think this belittling of the text really shows a, a double standard with how he treats progressive Christianity and how he treats his, his own theology in relation to the Bible. I just, I, I don't think... I don't think he's entirely consistent and, and nobody's going to be entirely consistent, but he's, he's overly hostile to people who read the text and say, yeah, the text says God repents. I'm going to believe God repents. He's like, oh, you're a heretic. You're not even a Christian. It's like, I just, I just reading the text and I, I just believe what the text says. Uh, and I guess I'm not a Christian for it. Oh, it's, it's so terrible that God would do that to us. Let's, let's say that I, I found someone and uh, you know, back in the day, people used to treat the text hyper-literally. So there, there is a, a passage in John Christianum, Christianum, I might be saying that wrong, in which he describes a bunch of people who read Jesus' statement, uh, take up your cross, and they were going around building real crosses and walking around with real crosses. It's like, if I met these people, I probably wouldn't say, you're a heretic and going to hell. I just probably feel sorry for them. It's like, I, I just, I don't think the text means that I could, I could see where you're coming from, but that's probably not the best reading is probably what I do. But uh, I think there's an existential threat that these people feel from open theism because I think they intuitively understand that open theism is textually based and all his counterexamples and all his arguments fall through with, with the smallest bit of scrutiny. Uh, he, do he doesn't seem to have any content interacting with an open theist to be called on these points and so yeah i don't i know he's, he's probably a famous guy who, who who's got not very much free time so i can't blame him for not having any interaction with open theists but but it would be nice to actually deal with open theist arguments and open theist open theistic scholarship on these various issues i would always point back to the Amanda McGinnis blog post on cheese wearing theology in which she talks about how there was a biblical scholar talking about God's repentances within Samuel and trying to say that Samuel, a character in the text, his dialogue trumped both the narrator and God about God's repentance. The narrator said God repents, God says God repents, but a character in the text said God doesn't repent. And it's, it's a subversion of biblical priorities to characterize and to to prioritize a character's statements in a text over God and the narrator. 
who typically take precedence. And, and on top of that, his comments were limited to, com to context. So if I say, hey kids, I'm not taking you to McDonald's anymore, and I'm not your mom, then I'm gonna change my mind. That doesn't mean I never changed my mind ever. It's limited to context. In this one circumstance, you're not gonna change my mind from changing my mind, bringing you to McDonald's. That's what the context bears out. You don't have to do this proof texting thing or the, the, the proof text trumping thing in which one proof text takes precedence and the others have to be, be dismissed through idiom or anthropomorphism and, and the character in the, in the story, or even worse, a false prophet named Balaam, his words trump everything that God says about himself. You don't have to do that. You, just, just a normal modem, just a little bit. Just a little bit of reading comprehension is all that you need. Anyways, that's what I wanted to talk about. Storytelling as truth making is invalid. Mike Winger recognizes it's invalid. He might he might suffer from it a little bit in small doses throughout throughout his teachings when he talks about the security that one feels in an unchanging God, and he might discount the text just a little bit. And in the same video, he was he's criticizing Christians who discount the text. He's saying that these people turn to the Old Testament and they just read something that happens and they say, oh, that's evil, so it didn't happen. Well, he does the same thing with God. He, he looks back in the Old Testament and he says, oh, that story about God, it's not fitting of God, so it must be false. So I must come up with this compliment or complicated hermeneutic in order to dismiss it that's non-intuitive, that no secular scholar agrees with, uh, because they wouldn't, because they, they're normal people who read texts in normal ways. No one's going to agree with this. That's what he has to do to dismiss those texts. Anyways, questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.